Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. My name is Patrick, and first off, I have to apologize for my absence over the past month. I have been um, working on a new job that I was offered recently, and it's been very uh, time-consuming, and so I didn't have as much time to focus on the podcast, but I have plenty of episodes coming up for you, which I'm excited for you to hear. So today on the show, you'll get to hear my interview with Dr. Lauren Harsma from Calvin College. He is professor of physics and astronomy, and he also has a keen interest in the world of theology and biblical scholarship. And he's especially interested in the intersection between science and religion or science and faith. And he's really, in his most recent book, which is called When Did Sin Begin? He's looking at this question of original sin and how to understand this in light of evolutionary origins and it's a very important contribution so i hope you enjoyed this conversation it was very enlightening for me and i hope it helps you to make sense of more of the intersection between science and faith so without further ado let's get on to the podcast well hello dr harsma welcome to the show thank you Happy to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book. But first of all, I'd like to maybe introduce you to the audience. This is just a set of brief, fun questions just to see what you're like. The most notable thing for me is that you're the first scientist I've interviewed uh, for this this show. Normally, it's simply Bible scholars, but you're, of course, a scientist. And I'm curious to know um, what made you want to be a scientist? Well, as a kid, I always loved math and science. Um, I remember in grade school getting books on the planets in the solar system and reading those. Uh, In high school, in a small-town public library, I would go and find popular-level books on particle physics, and I always loved good math puzzles. Um, But also, um, I could say a little about a sense of calling. I I remember when I was growing up, I heard a sermon once um, about what it meant to be called by God into some vocation. Um, The pastor was speaking to all the nurses and mechanics and farmers and teachers uh, there and talking about how if you enjoyed doing something, if you were able to do it, if there was a need for it, an opportunity for it, and if you really felt like God was calling you to do it, then maybe God was in fact calling you to that vocation. And I felt a gradual growing sense of God calling me into science uh, as I went through high school and college. It's interesting to me that you said um, that even as a kid, you were reading about particle physics. Um, Were you able to wrap your head around it at that age? Because even now when I'm trying to, sometimes I'll try and be smart, you know, and try and pick up a book on quantum mechanics or particle physics, and it just all goes over my head. But did you understand it at that age? or I got some of it. Um, But, you know, books that are written at a popular level, sometimes they're aimed at people who've had no college, sometimes they're aimed at people who've had a lot of college or university education. So I picked up what I could and the stuff that I didn't get, I just waited to see if, if later on, as I, as I got more education, if I would understand it better later. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And I'd be curious to know um, who your favorite Christian scientist is um, dead or alive. And just for the listeners, just to note, when I say Christian scientist, I am, of course, not referring to the cult that exists um, somewhere out there, but rather to Christian scientists. So um, when I was an undergraduate at Calvin College, uh, my professors gave me good models for what it meant to be a Christian and a scientist both. Um, And so I had a good background on how to put it together. But when I was in a a graduate student, there were two Christian physicists whose books really helped me to dive deep into the question. Donald Mackay, a physicist and neuroscientist, and John Polkinghorne. Uh, Their books um, talked about Um, as a physicist, understanding of natural law and randomness and so forth, but also a theological understanding of God's sovereignty and providence. And uh, their two ways of of approaching the the subjects really got me into uh, all of this. And uh, one other scientist I should mention, Francis Collins. Um, He is a very great scientist. He was head of the Human Genome Project. He's 
currently head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States. I met him a few times, heard him speak several times, whether he's talking to scientists or young science students or to Christian audiences. Um, he speaks very knowledgeably, but also he speaks in a very caring way and in a very open way about his faith. So um, he's another one of my favorite scientists. Yes, and I would recommend to any listeners who are interested in the science and religion debate to definitely get uh, Francis Collins' book, The Language of God. It's a very good um, popular level introduction, isn't it, to these questions. Even though you're, you're a scientist, um, you also have a profound interest in the Bible. Otherwise, um, you probably wouldn't be on this podcast. So um, I'm curious to know, um, what book of the Bible are you reading through at the minute? Um, I'm checking up on your quiet time. Yes. Um, well, I'm going to answer a slightly different question. Um, since it's the start of the academic year, I think a lot about what I might do for opening devotions in class, what I might talk to my students about. And usually at the start of an academic year, I like to return to the Sermon on the Mounts, the Sermon on the Mount and the parables in the Gospels, where Jesus teaches us to go beyond legalism, to really think about what it means to love God and love our neighbor. Now, another one of my favorites are the psalms and the hymns that talk about the natural world and about God's special revelation. So Psalm 19, Psalm 19, Psalm 104, which praise God for God's great creation, but also for God's uh, gift of special revelation. Uh, and hymns like How Great Thou Art. Um, that's a very wonderful hymn where the first two verses talk about um, the, the physical world, thunder and the stars and, and the biological world, um, uh, looking down on streams and meadows and hearing the birds. But then the third verse of that hymn uh, starts with, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. So again, putting together God as creator and God as redeemer, um, that's something I like to return to again and again, especially at the start of an academic year. Yeah, and there's certainly um, nothing nothing wrong with uh, bringing Jesus up at the at the start. Um, and th that's interesting to me. Is this a common thing at um, at universities where you have um, kind of devotionals, that kind of thing? Where... So I teach at Kelvin University, uh, which is. Uh, we we do often start uh, our 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. classes with devotions. Um, even more significantly, we try to make a point to weave a, a Christian perspective into whatever we're talking about as we're teaching the subject matter over the course of the year. So um, when theological issues are raised by the subject matter we're studying, we spend a little bit of talking about that with our students. Mm. And would you have any secular students coming to, to your classes or? Um, a few, yes. Um, I'd say every year there's a few students I have in class who come to Calvin College knowing it's a Christian university, knowing we talk about these things, uh, but they come anyway. They want the education we have. They're open to learning about this. Um, but the vast majority of my students are, are Christians um, from a variety of Christian traditions. Um, so they might walk in with a variety of theological perspectives that we can uh, then bring to the subject matter. Okay. Okay. That that is very very interesting. That I can't can't imagine that happening over here. Having, um, having devotions and all that at the start of the day, and uh, having mostly Christians in, in a in a university. It's very very secular over here. But um, that that's good to hear anyway. And I'd maybe like to uh, move on to talk about your book now. Which, as of the time we are recording this, I believe it is due to be released tomorrow. Um, I believe so. Yes. I'm sure you're excited about that. So it's called, When Did Sin Begin? Human Evolution and the Doctrine of Original Sin. And uh, this is um, this is a topic I'm, I'm very interested in myself. So it's um, great to have you on to talk about this. So I'd, I'd first like to know how you became interested in the creation evolution controversy um, and what brought you to this um, to this field? 
Well, um, early on, um, I was taught um, to have a very positive view of the interaction between science and theology, um, but to think about it. So I remember when I was 12, a uh, pastor sort of challenging our Sunday school class with this question. Science says that gravity keeps planets in the orbits, but the Bible says that God does it. Is that a contradiction? And we were invited to think about that for a while and, and sort of come to the realization that scientific explanations don't replace God. But also, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about gravity because God spoke to the original audience of Scripture in a way they could understand, you know, not using modern scientific terms. Um, so as science advanced over the centuries, the message of Scripture would remain the same, um, the way that the original audience could understand it. Um, so with that sort of positive background view of the interaction between science and theology, I it gradually became aware that there were these issues of potential controversy. Um, one of them was um, I sort of grew up in a church where a young earth interpretation of scripture was default. It wasn't a point of contention. It was just sort of the default assumption. But uh, through university, especially in graduate school, I learned more and more about astronomy and geology and what they said, uh, all the evidence there was for a history, a natural history going back billions of years. And it was a fantastic history to understand scientifically. Um, uh, learning about God's creation and learning about the fact that we could understand that history by studying it um, gave me a lot of reason to praise God. Um, but I did have to then figure out what do I do about Genesis? So what I did early in graduate school is I went back to the Old Testament scholars um, at my university and the Associated Seminary. There's Old Testament scholars. And I read what they wrote about interpretation of Genesis, about the poetry in Genesis, about how the original audience pictured a flat earth and a solid dome with waters above and waters below. And they really helped me. They helped me understand the Bible better. And they helped me understand why there wasn't a conflict between scripture and what I was learning about astronomy and geology. So that was very helpful. And having been helped so much by them, I said, well, what other areas of conflict are there out there where maybe there's still more work to be done? And I hit upon not so much evolution of plants and animals, but specifically human evolution and the doctrine of original sin. It seemed to me, and this was more, pretty true in the early 1990s, there wasn't a lot of books on this topic. So I thought, well, let me learn more theology. Let me learn more biblical history. Let me learn more science. Let me dig into this particular question some more. Mm. And it seems that sin is very much the, the center of the conflict. And it seems that if you ever go on a on a young earther um, website, you know, there's very many like Answers in Genesis and um, Creation Ministries. All of the articles tend to end with going going back to the problem of sin and how it originates. So I think I think you're definitely um, uh, touching on an, on an important um, topic there. Um, and I wonder if you could just explain maybe to the um, audience what the what the tension exactly is. What is this tension as it relates to the origin of sin and perhaps how we traditionally understand? Well, um, so um, it's sometimes said that, you know, the doctrine of sin is the most scientifically verifiable doctrine there is. And in a sense, it's true. It's easy to see sin everywhere. Um, and it's easy to study human behavior and see how we, we hurt other people. But, but to call it sin um, is, is sin is more than just bad behavior towards others. Um, sin is a theological concept. It is, it's a rebellion against God. Um, so in many senses, the thought that all humans today are sinful and, you know, we all um, are prone to sin, um, there's no conflict there. Um, now, going back in history, um, St. Augustine and others developed a doctrine of original, or I should say, a, a theology of original sin, um, which made a few assumptions. So there's a lot of things about the doctrine of original sin which are taught many where in Scripture. Original sin is not, as a doctrine, primarily about when did the first historical sin happen, but theologians throughout church history have also come up with um, 
um, more things to um, more have sort of gone deeper and come up with theories about how did this happen? What in fact was the first historical sin? So Augustine and others were wrestling with very particular questions, and Augustine and many other theologians through church history made a very reasonable assumption with the information they had at the time. They assumed that all humans today are descended from a single pair of individuals who lived um, in Mesopotamia a few thousand years ago and were all descended only from that pair. And they sort of built some of those assumptions into some of their thinking around the doctrine. Now, the science of human evolution is pointing to a different natural history of human beings uh, that were not all descended from a single pair. Um, and we can say more uh, later about what science is pointing to. Uh, so the tension arises. If, if Augustine and other theologians' assumption that we're all descended from a single pair a few thousand years ago um, isn't true, if, if natural history is a bit different, and if they were sort of working with that assumption as they developed the doctrine, is the whole doctrine uh, in trouble? Hmm. And sort of the primary um, thesis of my book is, no, that in fact, if you take the scientific evidence for human evolution, there's a lot of different ways to preserve the core doctrine of original sin and also what science is telling us about human origins. There's many different possible ways to do that. But it takes a little work to think through the the pros and cons and the consequences of those different ways. Mm. And it certainly it certainly is a, a tension. In um, it's not really one of those things that you can just say, oh, it's no big deal. Like it is genuinely something that that Christians have to have to wrestle through. And I think that's where I think perhaps we would both have sympathy for um, our younger creationist brethren and. Uh, and sisters and such, because they really are um, pointing out um, something that needs to be worked through. Um, and it's not just evolution, of course. There's also this question of um, modern psychology and um, how that informs our understanding of sin. Um, I know that's not exactly what you're looking at in this book, but I'm curious if um, what your thoughts would be on whether modern psychology sits well with the biblical notion of sin. Well, the biblical notion of sin is a small word wrapped around a huge concept. So in scripture, sin is both action and attitude, which precedes action. Sin is both willful disobedience, but it's also a condition that's beyond our control. Um, sin is individual and it's communal. Um, we're aware of sin through general revelation, that is our conscience and our reason and our empathy, but we're also aware of sin through God's special revelation. Um, so uh, I would say in terms of modern psychology, a lot of that complexity is there in modern psychology. Modern psychology tells us that we have competing impulses to be nice to each other and nasty to each other. That comports well with what scripture says about sin. Modern psych evolutionary psychology tells us something about how those competing impulses may have come about in our evolutionary history. Um, our behavior is not simply a case of nature versus nurture. Uh, both of them shape each other, as psychology is telling us. And, and that relates well to what scripture says about the complexity of sin. It's both what we choose to do and it's a condition beyond our control. Um, Psychology, modern psychology says that it's not a case of reason versus emotion or, or will versus impulses. They're, they're very interconnected with each other. What we will and, and our impulses are connected. And, and again, that's connected, that, that fits well with what scripture says about sin. Um, also, our profound interrelatedness, what I do for good or, or ill affects other people, and what they do affects me both modern psychology and scripture agree about that. Now, to say something is sin, though, is to go beyond modern psychology. It, it requires some revelation from God to say, what you're doing um, is breaking your relationship with God. Um, I like how um, C.S. Lewis and Augustine sometimes talk about sin in that 
sin isn't good and evil are not equal opposites the way they're often portrayed in in modern culture you know in um if you're writing a story or a comic book or a movie to have forces of good and evil who are equal and opposite to each other makes good drama but it's bad theology um but um you know, Lewis and, and Augustine and others point out that we're created with desires for many good things. We desire healthy and tasty food. We desire safety for ourselves and our families. We desire the ability to accomplish things. And these are good things, but it becomes sinful when our loves become out of order. We should love God above all we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and when we love some of these creaturely goods more than we love God and more than we love our neighbors, that is sin. And that breaks our relationship with God because we're supposed to be imitators of Christ, especially in self-sacrificial love. And when we do not display self-sacrificial love, we fail to be like Christ and we fail to be the kinds of beings who can be with God eternally, and God needs to rescue us from that. And, you know, modern psychology doesn't talk about that. That's where revelation has to come in and tell us the rest of the story. Mm. And I will um, add a hearty amen to that. And um, definitely when you bring um, theology into it, it's kind of a, a level above psychology of as important as, as psychology is. Um, and so when it comes to the origin of sin, which is the main point of your book, um, a question I've had for a long time is, um, is even the most ardent um, traditionalist or um, creationist, are they still engaged in speculation when it comes to this question? Because it would seem that we're never told the, like, the mechanism by which sin entered the serpent in the garden, or you know, was this just a flick of the switch in the brain, that, that kind of thing. So I wonder what you'd think of what you think of that. Well, of course, there's inevitably some speculation, and, and that's not a bad thing. That's been going on throughout church history. Um, there's always been sort of a core doctrine theologians have agreed about, um, such as, you know, everybody agrees there was an act of disobedience against God's revealed will, but, but there's speculation about, well, what preceded that first act of disobedience? Um, in the first humans. You know, uh, Augustine said it was human pride. Luther said it was lack of faith. Um, other theologians have speculated about other things. Um, so there's always been speculations about what preceded that first disobedience in humans, and, and even more speculation about the serpent, the accuser, Satan, the enemy. Um, so it's okay. I think it's inevitable to have, have some amount of wondering about that. We sometimes run into trouble when our favorite speculative theory, we hold that with equal certainty to the core doctrine. Um, in the sciences, we get a lot of practice with thinking about, well, what are our theories which are really well established by lots and lots of data? And what's the latest theory I've come up with in my lab today for why my equipment isn't working? And that's probably gonna be disproved three times today. Um, and so you get a lot of understanding of a lot of practice with thinking about what are theories that are well-established and where am I speculating and what's in between. Um, and I try to carry that over into my theological thinking too. Um, what's well-established by scripture and church tradition? Where am I speculating? And um, where should I hold on to my speculation a little more lightly? But that doesn't mean the speculation is unhelpful. It, it's a helpful in the process of understanding the core doctrine better. Right. And yes, I would agree with that. It's helpful, but it's always provisional. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. So um, with this in mind, maybe you could talk through um, your book just briefly about some of these models that you alluded to for making sense of how sin began, um, granting this evolutionary view of um, the human past. Right. So before talking about how sin entered the human story, I should probably summarize just a little bit how what science and archaeology are telling us about early human history. So just a couple of points of summary. Um, there's a lot of genetic evidence and fossil evidence and other evidence that humans have common ancestry with animals. A lot of evidence for that. Um, and that our ancestral population was always more than two individuals. One thing we've learned from evolutionary biology is that 
when species diverge from each other, the, the founding population of a species usually isn't just two individuals. It's more like you have a, an interbreeding population, which then splits into two or more subgroups who stop interbreeding for reasons of behavior or geography, whatever. And that what eventually becomes the founding population of a new species is usually more than just two individuals. Human genetics, um, it looks like the human ancestral population was never as small as two individuals. It looks like there was a bottleneck in human ancestral population maybe 100 or 150,000 years ago of at least a few thousand individuals. Um, another thing we learn is uh, from the science is while humans are unique from animals in many ways, our level of intelligence, our language abilities, our, our cooperation abilities, but it looks like God gave us those abilities gradually through an evolutionary process. There, there doesn't We don't see in the scientific evidence a sharp demarcation point in history where there was a huge sudden change. Um, we also learned that our ancestors almost certainly had mixtures of nasty and nice behavioral dispositions towards each other. But we also learned that the human population is a unity. We have genetic and genealogical unity, uh, all of us homo sapiens together today. Mm. So that's a little bit of what science is telling us. Now, into that story, you can ask the theological question, when does sin enter the story? And there's a lot of possible models. Um, and I sort of, in my book, frame these around questions. One question might be, well, how long ago was it? Maybe a few million years ago um, when our ancestors were becoming more and more self-aware. Um, maybe we should peg it around about 150,000 years ago when, when Homo sapiens was more or less diverged into a, a um, um, a pretty identifiable species, um, and we're sort of anatomically and genetically modern, uh, but not quite behaviorally modern. Or maybe we should peg the entrance of sin about 10,000 or 20,000 years ago when humans were already scattered across the globe and just beginning to have farming and, and writing and so forth. Um, you can make a case for any one of those answers. Another question you might ask is, how best should we interpret the Adam and Eve of Genesis 2 and 3? Um, maybe, and some, some writers have su suggested this, maybe God specially selected a pair of individuals out of a larger population and gave them special revelation. They were sort of the first people who then had the chance to uh, obey or, or sin against God's special revelation. Um, so they were a pair of individuals out of, um, out of a larger population. Or maybe... We should think of Adam and Eve as a literary, literary representation of many individuals scattered over many centuries of human prehistory, many who received some sort of revelation from God and rebelled, and sin came in through an accumulation of many rebellions. Or, many, or maybe, others suggest, uh, maybe the Adam and Eve in Genesis, of Genesis 2 and 3 symbolically represent all of our ancestors over a long period of our prehistory who collectively rebelled against God's both general and special revelation. Now, there are biblical scholars who argue for each of those as being the best interpretation. Hmm. One more question I'll throw out here. Uh, how did sin spread from those historically first sinners to the rest of the population? Were, were the first sinners sort of the legal and spiritual representatives? So as soon as they sinned, everybody inherited the status of of sinners. Or another possibility is maybe sin spread from those first sinners to the rest of humanity through social contact and learning. Or another possibility is it sort of spread genealogically from parents to children. So the offspring of those first sinners um, mixed with the rest of the population over many generations until eventually we're all unified in, in this population. So these are three questions, and I can think of a few more questions you can ask, and, and you can answer each of those questions in different ways, and each answer sort of leads to a different model of how sin entered the human story and how sin spread from the first sinners to the rest of the population. So there's a lot of models. I sometimes like to joke now that the problem we face as a church is not that there's no way to reconcile human evolution and the doctrine of original sin. The problem is we have way too many ways now. 
And we have to sort of work through the possibilities. We got to sort through the pros and cons of all those different possibilities, um, which is good work to do, but it's going to take some, some time and thinking. Uh, but one other thing I'll add is no matter which of those models you pick as your favorite, um, all of those different models sort of lead to the same current state of humanity. They all sort of come to the point where we are now, where all humans today are prone to sin, and all of us can't avoid sinning, and our only hope of rescue is through Christ. Mm. Yes, and uh, as you were uh, going through all those uh, different models, it just struck me just how um, wonderfully complex this discussion is, that there's just so much to so much to think about um, uh, when you uh, when you think of these different models. And one of the things, of course, um, you mentioned was this idea of multiple falls, you know, that you have perhaps the Adam and Eve story was basically kind of a symbolic retelling of um, multiple falls of our ancestors, that kind of thing. And I'm curious to know, um, this seems like an interesting idea, but do you think this turns sin into an would this turn sin into an inevitability? I think someone might have that concern. So what would you say to that? I would say of all the questions that you can ask about these models, that's one of the best questions to ask. Um, and so as a scientist getting into of original sin, I had to read a lot of theology, a lot of uh, biblical scholarship in church history. And in doing so, I discovered that the theological richness of church tradition is, is wonderful. It's a vast treasure store of thinking about really hard theological questions throughout church history and very valuable in approaching today's questions. So, so let's bring that to bear on the question you just asked. Um, throughout church history, theologians have debated about whether or not humanity's rebellion into sin was or was not, in some sense, inevitable. Um, now, for those who were, would write that, you know, sin had, humanity's fall into sin must have been avoidable, they point to scripture passages which talk about how God permits sin, but God doesn't cause sin. And creation was declared very good at the beginning uh, in Genesis chapter one. And, and God is just. And all of these things point to the idea that, you know, if we're all in a state of sin now and God is, is God, you know, um, says um, that uh, there's an inevitable punishment that comes with that, must, it must be the case that sin was avoidable. But on the other hand, there are theologians who've long written that, no, actually, it seems like humanity's fallen sin was, in some sense, inevitable. And they point to passages like Ephesians 1, 4 through 8, or 1 Peter 1, 18 and 20, and other passages which talk about the Lamb of God being slain before the foundation of the world, uh, or Christ's followers being chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Also, coming from a Calvinist tradition, I have to point out some theologians put a very strong evidence on God's sovereignty and foreknowledge. And so if you have a theology with a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty, then the incarnation of Christ and the redemption through Christ can't be God's plan B, which humanity forced God to somehow come up with when God was surprised by our rebelling. Um, that doesn't seem to fit well with God's sovereignty. And, and one other point, um, the self-giving sacrificial love of Christ seems in, in a very real way to be a sort of an ultimate self-revelation of God to us about who God is. And if that self-sacrificial love is really the story, the sort of the culmination of God's self-revelation to us, then one could argue, and some people do argue, that that implies that the fall was an inevitable part of this story. So church history then provides us with some, some competing thoughts about was the fall avoidable or was it inevitable? Now let's apply that to the question you just asked. Um, it does seem to me that if the Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3 are, are literary or symbolic representations of many people over a long period of time with sort of multiple falls, then it almost seems like the fall was inevitable. I can, I can imagine ways around it. Uh, here's an analogy. I could imagine someone learning to play chess 
at a grandmaster level without ever losing a game of chess if they always played at just the right opponents at just the right level over and over again and learn the game as they go. Maybe. Despite that, you know, as I say, I can think of ways around it. Nevertheless, it does seem to me, and I would agree with you, that one is inclined or pushed towards an idea that the fall was in some sense inevitable if you sort of take a long view of Adam and Eve as, as many individuals over time. On the other hand, if you interpret Adam and Eve as a particular pair of individuals at a particular point in time who were selected out of a larger population, then I see it seems to me you have more of a choice. You can easily make that work with the fall being avoidable or the fall being inevitable, depending on uh, how your theology is pointing you on that question. Mm. And I think what you were saying about perhaps the, the idea of perhaps sin um, happened through um, the first sinners coming into contact with other people and kind of spreading it. And there, there's very much kind of this um, idea of if one person starts doing something, other people will start doing it. And it's kind of like this, almost like this contagion that starts spreading. Um, so that, that there's, um, that's an interesting idea that I'll, I'll have to think through, I think. Which of these models do you, do you think you are most um, inclined to? Um, if you could, if you could lay out like your own view, if you were to take one, what would it, what would it be? In my book, I deliberately don't say what my favorite model is. I describe a range of models which I say fit science and fit scripture. I describe pros and cons of those models, and I don't pick one. and And I do that deliberately because I think what the church needs right now most on this issue is the understanding that there is a range of models that work, and and so. That's my way of communicating that we don't have to fear or reject the science of human evolution, nor do we need to throw out the core scriptural teachings on sin. We can have both, and there's quite a few ways to do it. And for that reason, if you talk to me in private, in my home, or in my office, maybe I'll tell you what my favorite is today. Uh, but for right now, I think when I give public talks and talk about my book, I will just lay out the range of models and say there's pros and cons and leave it at that. Okay. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. And I, I certainly understand what you're saying. You know, um, I, I recently had a author um, and her name is uh, Cameron Howard on the podcast. And she was talking about how some having, having a, a church where you have this healthy emphasis on surfacing possibilities rather than giving definite answers is sometimes a, a very valuable and important thing to have. So I, I totally understand that. So I'd like to move on maybe to speaking about the, the Bible in general. So whoever, whoever we say that Adam and Eve were, whether they're um, symbolic or a, a genuine couple, it's, it's always struck me that even though they're the originators of the human sin problem, they, they feature so little in, in the old Testament. Um, you know, and, Certainly they're dead after page four, but the later writers don't seem to place nearly as much emphasis on them as modern day Christians. So I'm wondering, why do you think this is? Do you have any, do you have any theories as, as to why this I, is? I, I have a theory based on, on what I've read of from Old Testament and New Testament scholars. I don't know if this theory is right, but I would speculate that I, I think in the Old Testament time, God was primarily giving special revelation to the children of Israel. So throughout the Old Testament, while God does occasionally speak as the creator of everything, most often God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought you out of Egypt, the God who gave you the law of Moses. That was an, a revelation aimed at the children of Israel. That's how they were meant to understand their story and their God in terms of the promises to Abraham, the delivery out of Egypt, and the law of Moses. So something changed with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the apostles had to learn to think bigger. They were used to thinking of the Messiah as someone who would free Israel from foreign oppressors and restore the kingdom of Israel through obedience to the law of Moses. And then the apostles discovered to their surprise that the Messiah was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and, and the Messiah through death and resurrection, brought reconciliation to God apart from the law of Moses. Now that is a shock. So if you're one of the apostles 
How do you make sense of that? Uh, well, Paul in the book of Romans gives us at least two ways to make sense of that. In chapter two of the book of Romans, Paul doesn't mention Adam, but God, but does mention how the Gentiles have the law of God written in their hearts and how even the Jews are not saved by the law. Now, in Romans 5, Paul does something else. Paul uses Adam as a way to bring Gentiles into the story of the Messiah. And so I think that's what's going on here. I think that's why the shift to the new in the in the New Testament, the realization that the Messiah was about more than rescue from political oppressors, about more than obedience to the law. It was for the Gentiles. I think that's why the New Testament writers start bringing Adam back into the story um, and talking about, about the sort of the beginning of sin for all of humanity. Okay, that, that is an interesting idea that I've never actually heard before. So sort of the idea that the Old Testament is Israel-focused and, and with good reason, and in the New Testament this is expanded um, to include all of humanity. And of course, in that context, um, it makes sense that authors would be more inclined to speak of Adam. So that's a, that's a very interesting way of looking at it, and I'll have to think about that a bit more. Of course, you brought up Paul there and his treatment of this issue in Romans, which is um, quite an important passage. So, and this is, of course, where Augustine got his idea of um, original sin, I believe, basically the idea that sin is passed on genetically. Um, and the do you think that there's there's a problem with this view? Because I've always wondered, well, doesn't this mean that babies have, you know, <laughs> that they have this genetic um, thing that's been passed on to them. And then, of course, you know, the that a million dollar question that arises, what happens when a baby dies and all that sort of thing. So um, do you think that that Augustinian understanding, do we have to move beyond that to a certain extent? Um, or what do you think? Well, um, so Augustine was... Uh, faced with an interesting, several interesting questions. And Augustine was dealing with the questions of his era using sort of the theological and philosophical tools that he had. Um, so one of the questions was, um, if you insist, as Augustine and the church as a whole did, that no one can be righteous apart from Christ, um, that even infants who have not willfully committed a sin in some sense, need grace through Christ, what, what does that mean? Um, so Augustine made use of some ideas that were available um, at his time. One is that um, there was sort of a debate about where the soul co comes from. Does God specially create each soul? Or, as Augustine argued, is the soul sort of created out of the souls of the parents the way the body of the child is created out of the body of the parents? Um, and, and Augustine sort of went for that philosophical idea that both our souls and our bodies of an infant originate naturally out of those of the parents. So in some sense, the human nature of the parents is passed on from, um, from one generation to the next. So Augustine didn't think in terms of genetics, but he did think in terms of human nature. So if human nature was, um, was in some sense affected by sin, then the damage to human nature would naturally be passed on from parents to offspring. Um, now, we have modern ways to talk about that in terms of genetics and in terms of culture, of course. Um, it's obvious to see how a sinful culture affects children um, and pushes children to become sinners. Um, you can also think to a little bit about to what extent does sinful culture affect human genetics over many generations. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, so that's one, one sort of set of questions you can ask. Um, but I think we can come back to sort of the core of what Augustine uh, and many others affirmed, which is that all humans today are prone to sin 
And even among infants who have not yet willfully sinned, they are born into a situation where sin for them is inevitable. To what extent you want to lay that at the feet of genetics versus culture or some mixture of the two it is a harder question. But but there's, in some sense, even, even infants need Christ's redeeming grace. I, I think that's something we can affirm and express in more modern terms uh, using scientific concepts that Augustine didn't have at that time. I'd like to uh, ask about um, a couple of other kind of sim similar issues that, that arise when we're thinking of this um, difficult question of sin beginning. And one is this idea of uh, in, in philosophy, that was my degree was in philosophy, and this question of free will and determinism. Um, mm. And uh, of course, for the audience that may not know, free will is basically the idea that you can choose to do things and that you're not fated um, to, to choose a particular path. And of course, determinism is the idea that you have no control over the, the things that you choose. It's, it's just, um, well, I suppose for for atheists, it's just the, the chemicals in your, in your brain that are making the decision. It's not you. And for Christians, well, maybe it's maybe it's uh, uh, God who's pulling the strings. Um, uh, how I'm not sure. Um, it's quite an uncomfortable uh, idea. But how do you think the the free will versus determinism debate does it inform the question of when sin began and and that? Do you think? Or? To maybe some extent, so so free will versus determinism is a huge philosophical question, and it's a theological question, and not surprisingly, there's a range of views among theologians through church history. So there has been a minority view among theologians, like John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards, who sort of reject the usual notion of free will, and, and they would say, for example, that a person freely chooses to do something. When a person freely chooses, what we mean to say is their actions were not constrained from the outside, but they were acting according to their natures, that they could not have chosen otherwise except according to their natures. Now, I think that's a minority view among theologians through church history. I think most theologians would have a more positive view of free will, that if a person chooses to act one way, it's meaningful to say that in some cases they could have chosen to act differently. Now, what you think about free will versus determinism will affect what you think about the doctrine of original sin. Um, but again, theologians throughout church history have found ways to make the doctrine of original sin work with a range of views on free will versus determinism. You know, Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin wrote about the doctrine of original sin one way, and other theologians wrote another way. So I think we can do the same today. Um, no matter where you come down on that question of free will versus determinism philosophically or theologically, as long as you your opinion on that topic sort of falls within Christian tradition, I think you can make it work with a lot of these different models I laid out for how sin entered the world. It might push you towards some of those models and away from some of those other models, but I don't think the answer to that question sort of forces you to one particular model of how sin entered the world. Okay. At the, at the conclusion of your book, um, you have um, a very important chapter, um, and it's called God's Answer is Still Christ. And um, you've alluded to this um, throughout the interview, but I wonder if you could spell out what you're trying to accomplish with this chapter. Yes, thank you. So in most of my book, I ask the question, when did sin begin? And I say there's a lot of possible answers that fit both scripture and science, and there's pros and cons, and that we don't have a clear-cut answer, and, and we don't need a clear-cut answer. But at the very beginning of the book and the end of the book, I say that the question, when did sin begin, is not the most important question. The most important question is, what is God doing about sin, and how do we participate in what God is doing? And, and on that question, Scripture tells us a lot. Uh, and in particular, it tells us that God's shocking answer to that question, what is God doing about sin, is Jesus. Um, and here I, I get, a, I, I like to use some sort of doxological thinking that the, that the word of God being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He became an infant. He grew and lived as we do. Uh, he didn't sin, but he suffered the terrible consequences of sin, including 
denial and betrayal by friends and mob hatred and unjust condemnation by religious and secular authorities and death by torture. So we, we get an idea of how big the problem of sin is by saying God did all of that in order to overcome the problem of sin. Um, and then, of course, God invites us into the story by becoming faithful followers of Christ. So I wanted to begin and end the book by reminding ourselves that as important and as useful as these questions about when sin began are, the more important question is, what is God doing and how do we participate in what God is doing? Mm. And, and I think that's definitely helpful as well for maybe some people who have a more traditional approach um, to, to the question. They might you know, think uh, 6,000 years ago, that was when it, when it all began, but it's, it's good if they can agree with your first and, first and last chapter. That will, that will maybe um, help them to pay a more sympathetic ear to the rest of what you're saying. You know, you're not a heretic. You're, you're, <laughs> you really care about Jesus and all that and his, an and his answer to sin and all that. So that's great. Um, um, I suppose the last question I'd ask you, um, there may be some uh, Christians who are scientists who are, who are listening to this um, and they're... Um, that maybe thought of this question, or they're certainly thinking through the supposed conflict between um, science and religion. What what would your what would your advice be to them? Um, so one piece of advice I have is um, find a way to see your work as a scientist as a part of your vocation and obedience to God. Something that God calls you to do, not something separate from your life of faith. Now. It's, that's a hard thing to do when you sort of feel isolated. Uh, if you feel like people at your work or even people at your church um, maybe can't help you sort of put those parts of your life together, but there are places to find help. Um, it's very helpful to have the support of fellow Christians who are scientists. Uh, for myself, since graduate school, I've been a member of an organization called the American Scientific Affiliation. Um, its website is asa3.org. There are um, UK versions of that and other organizations. I'm also involved with something called BioLogos, biologos.org. Um, those organizations have really helped me integrate my love of science uh, and my work as a scientist into my life of faith. And whenever there have been sort of um, issues where I wonder how do they go together? Is there conflict here? I've always found resources in those organizations that could help me. Mm. One other sort of daily thing I found helpful um, is, um, especially when I, I was at uh, large universities working in research groups, was to pray regularly for my colleagues, uh, practice the discipline of seeing my colleagues as God's children, even the ones who don't see themselves that way. And, and that's a way to sort of put the parts of your life together, uh, all together in obedience to God. Okay, that's, that's very helpful, thanks. And hopefully that will um, help, help some people out there. I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast today. Um, I greatly appreciate it. And I'll uh, put a link to your book in the description. It will be out by the time this podcast comes out. So, All right, thank you very much. This was um, very interesting, very helpful, um, and very enjoyable.